welcome to the 37th episode of the New Ventures podcast. I'm your host, Sanjoy Sanyal, the founder of Regan Paradise, a boutique climate finance firm and a visiting fellow at the Cambridge Judge Business School. I host the New Ventures podcast to help everybody understand climate change topics. The question that we discuss today is you can have the best ESG frameworks, but what good is that without data? In this entire discussion of ESG, data is the one key question. To discuss this, we have Christian Along, the Director of Climate Solutions of Keros, which provides an energy and environmental analytics. Welcome, Christian. Thank you, Sanjoy. It's great to be here. Christian, let's start by the type of data you provide. And obviously, let's start with greenhouse gases. Can you just give us an orientation of what you measure and what frequency and in what granularity, please? Sure. One of the first things we started to do with environmental data is using satellites to measure emissions of methane. We thought it was a very important topic because methane accounts for about 25% of global warming, but we don't hear too much about it because we didn't have good data. All the focus was on CO2, Methane is much more difficult to measure, and therefore there was not a lot of action to reduce those emissions. So the way we we work is new satellites have been launched. Uh, They can measure the concentration of methane in the atmosphere. And so we developed the algorithms to convert those satellite observations into identification of methane sources, how much methane they're emitting, what facilities are responsible, and therefore build a, a much more complete picture of the carbon footprint of the energy sector, uh, which is responsible for a lot of the the man-made emissions around the world. Methane is the first one. The satellite is flying around the world, so it's global coverage with daily frequency. But of course, you need to worry about things like clouds and other things that can get in the way. But it's a really unique data set. We're very excited about this new data set. You have already introduced several topics which we should talk about. But first on methane. Methane is really critical, right? Warming potential is multiple times that of CO2. And as you said, it is never talked about too much. And I guess we are somewhat lucky that in Glasgow, the importance got popped up. You're obviously working with the alliance that is putting together the reduction of methane. That's right. Uh, Now that we're starting to have data on where the methane is coming from, it means we can identify where emissions are highest, and also to monitor efforts to reduce those emissions. So we were at COP last year, we presented the findings of our work, and that coincided with you know, governments, including the European Union, announcing pledges to reduce emissions of methane by at least 30% by 2030, and also plans to create an emissions observatory that is going to be coordinating the registry of who's emitting how much and working very much with energy companies so that they not only improve the accuracy of their reporting, but also show some results in terms of mitigation. Right. I want to just talk a little bit about the satellite data that you use. And I guess you get a lot of satellite data, but just to put it in a layman's language. So you'll probably have to look, for example, where methane leaks are most likely, that is, you know, oil and gas installations. Can you give us a sense of where you look? Certainly. So talking a little bit about different types of satellites, there are public satellites and commercial satellites. Public satellites, like the ones from the European Space Agency and NASA, they make their data publicly available to everyone. Of course, you need to have some technical knowledge to interpret 
that satellite data, but it's open to everyone and that's great for transparency. Commercial satellites, you have to purchase that data, so it's going to remain private in most cases. And then you have satellites that monitor the entire planet, so they are scanning everything across their path. And you have tasking satellites that you request to look at specific areas at a given point in time. So for methane, we think public satellites that are monitoring the entire planet are the most appropriate because methane, you don't necessarily know where these big uh, releases are going to come from. We have focused on the oil and gas industry as well as coal mining. But what we found is that methane is not spread evenly across the energy industry and some countries and some basins and some supply chains have much higher emissions than others, but that you know can vary during the year. So that's why it's important to try to scan as much territory as possible and then learn from the data so that we understand what the patterns are and where we should focus our attention. And it is not only methane that you're measuring, right? Now, I know that you measure land and use in biomass and you measure physical even. Could you give us an insight into what else are you measuring? Certainly. So after methane, uh, two other areas that we thought could really benefit from satellite data were forestry, biomass, nature-based solutions, because forests can play a really critical role towards net zero. But traditionally, if you want to keep track of how much CO2 is being absorbed by a piece of forest in the Amazon, sending people in the field with measuring tapes is expensive. It's hard to do in practice and not necessarily very accurate. So what we developed is a platform that again uses on different type of satellites to do inventories of trees, look at their height and size, and monitor their growth so that we can assess with more confidence and accuracy the changes in carbon stock and therefore the CO2 that they're sequestering. And in a similar vein, you know, we live in a warming planet. We have been seeing rising temperatures this last summer, huge fires in the US and Europe and Australia, among other places. And so the physical risk from wildfires is increasing. And another application we've developed based on satellite uh, analytics is to assess the risk of wildfires region by region. And for this, we would look, for example, at you know the level of moisture in the soil and your vegetation, the amount of dry vegetation that can be sort of fuel vulnerable to any type of spark or thunder, and so have a quantifiable measure of wildfire risk. And this is great. The point that you make about forests, forests are equally important for climate adaptation at the local level. It uh, prevents runoff from extreme floods, for example. So measuring forests is critical, uh, not only for net zero, but also for climate adaptation. Which brings me to the next question. Do you cover the entire world? So for example, would you cover emerging economies like Asia and Africa, or is analytics that you do focused around the European Union or the United States? No, it's very much global. And actually, a lot of the time we are looking at Latin America, the Middle East, Southeast Asia, Africa. So it's really driven by where we can add value, the forests that are growing, the forests that need to be protected. We're going to go to the countries and regions where they are located. If we're talking about the risk of wildfires, then again, it's going to be part of the US and Europe and elsewhere. And same thing for methane. So we really go, the value we can provide is greatest. And we can do that because the coverage of the satellites is global. And at what frequency do you publish? Obviously, you are scanning data all the time, right? Every second. But use algorithms to interpret and analyze the data and then 
perhaps some human interventions. What frequency do you have your uh, analyzed reports, if you may? So it varies. Some data we update on a daily basis. So the satellites are doing their orbits. They beam down their data to ground station. We retrieve it from there. We run our algorithms. A human has a, a final look for quality control, and then it's published on our platform to our users. So that would be done on a daily basis. If you're talking, on the other hand, about the stock of a forest, it's not going to change day by day. So measuring it on an annual or quarterly basis is enough. And likewise, the risk of wildfires, you don't necessarily need to update everything on a daily basis, but conditions will change during the year. And so it's a question of, you know, finding the right frequency that makes sense for the user uh, and also, you know, trying to keep costs as low as possible. We will get into the process part uh, in more detail, actually, towards the end of the podcast. But at this point of time, what I'm hearing you say is that obviously some data is, needs to be published and updated regularly, and some data you know, can be published at more uh, predictable intervals, but longer intervals. One of the things that I found curious is that you obviously started with methane, which is the highest global warming potential. But do you measure carbon at all? We also look at CO2 emissions, uh, but we do it indirectly. We're not looking at CO2 concentrations per se, because it's very complicated. You have living beings that are also emitting emissions. You have vegetation that is soaking it up. So we found an indirect way of looking at CO2, and that is to look at, at heat. So there's, once again, an specific satellites that look at infrared light. And if you have an idea of where power plants are located, for example, you can see the heat coming from a coal power plant or a gas power plant. And the amount of heat coming from that plant indicates how hard it is running, how much fuel it is burning. And we, as it turns out, with the right algorithms, you can convert these observations of heat around the world across all the industrial facilities in the US, in China, in India, and elsewhere into proxy for CO2 emissions from man-made sources. And so that's a platform that we update on a daily basis. We also rely on, say, geolocation data to see how many cars are moving, what distance they are traveling. That tells you how much fuel and diesel is being consumed. So that's how we keep track of CO2. And it's a daily measure in near real time of the carbon footprint of the world economy, which is a really cool data set. Fantastic. Let me try and sum it up. Obviously, you measure methane on a regular basis, and that's really important. We've discussed that. You have proxies that give overall sense of the entire carbon economy in the world, again, on a regular basis. And then you have on top of that the measure of the forests, the forest cover, which, as I we discussed, has both mitigation and adaptation angles to it. And then you have a predictor of some extreme events like wildfire. Is that a correct holistic picture? Uh, that's right. Brilliant. And then I guess when you look at this data together and not just one element, then you can create a slightly different picture out of it, right? And perhaps you may talk a little bit about it. Yeah, so I think what's really interesting about these new data sets is, first of all, that it's an independent data source. So investors and policymakers rely on companies to say what's happening in their operations. 
And you see that in sustainability reports that are released once a year. But for anyone listening who's ever gone through a sustainability report, there's a lot of pictures, there's a lot of good intentions, but the data is not always particularly granular or even useful. And so what this satellite data provides is an independent source of data that can be much more granular. We can look at Again, monthly, weekly, sometimes daily frequency, individual assets, breakdown by country, by regions. And that, I think, is very important. Another new element of this data is that it's really driven by science. All the things that we're doing are backed up by peer-reviewed research. You can see in journals like Science, the way it was done, the data set that were used to calibrate the algorithms and the, the accuracy that was achieved. Perhaps most importantly... This data allows us to make better decisions. That's the, the main point. But when it comes to environmental data, it's really highlighting things that we can do now, often at very low cost, and that can have a huge impact in terms of climate action. And that's something that I, me and my colleagues really feel strongly about, about the why of why we're doing all of this. Absolutely. And this will actually provide us a perfect segue to the next section, which is how you can work with your customers to help them benefit. So, Christian, let's talk a little bit about your customers. I guess you have both public and private customers. So give us an overview. Certainly. We serve mainly three types of customers. There's the public sector, environmental protection agencies, energy regulators, who are interested in knowing what's happening in their jurisdictions, but also interested in policy and how can they implement new, more ambitious policies because they will have the data and the tools to monitor compliance with those new policies. The second segment is financial institutions. So it can be insurers, asset managers, hedge funds, who can be always on the lookout for data to improve the accuracy of their models and, and measure the carbon footprint of their portfolios. And the third segment is operators. So these tend to be mainly energy producers, who, of course, will have a very important role to play in the net zero transition. And what we offer them is new tools to complement their existing efforts and that can help them decarbonize faster and in, in a more cost-efficient manner. Great. And in particular, I think we really want to focus the rest of the podcast on the second category, the investors, in, especially given the debate around ESG investing. If you had to talk to investors in terms of helping them use your data, what are the important things that you talk about? For example, they would be interested in reporting, especially in the TCFD regulations. Or are they interested in thinking about their investees, you know, developing adaptation measures? You know, what's really on top of their mind? So yes, reporting is definitely up there on the list. And in particular, because emissions of methane in the energy sector are equivalent to about 10 billion tons of CO2 equivalent, and most of that is missing from corporate reporting and therefore from what the financial industry is working with. So improving the quality of reporting, particularly you know, scope one emissions in the energy sector and scope three emissions for everybody else. But it goes beyond the reporting. And another angle that I think is coming up on people's radars is the impact of environmental data on asset valuation. In the United States, they've passed a new bill that introduces a price on methane, which leads to penalties for energy producers starting in 2024. Those penalties will be ramped up gradually as the price of methane increases. Um, and we can expect similar measures being taken in Europe, eventually in Asia as well. So 
the exposure of companies to, to methane and other environmental factors is no longer something hypothetical. It's now something that analysts will have to integrate in their models. Along similar lines, risk management is something that can benefit from satellite data. We mentioned the example of, of wildfires. We we'll also talk about the risk of flooding, where we know the environment is changing and we need better data to replace you know, historical models of risk. And lastly, I'd say engagement is a new area that I would emphasize to investors. If investors want to engage with companies in their portfolio, it really helps to have your own independent source of data. You're no longer dependent only corporate reporting to understand what's happening. You can see for yourself what is happening inside the companies in your portfolio, and you can have a much more informed discussion on where and how to take certain actions to reduce the environmental footprint of those companies. And this last point is obviously absolutely correct. I was there in the London Climate Action Week and in the HSBC sustainable director, he was making the point that we have to take our clients along with us, which is not easier. So in increasing engagement by having an independent insight in the way you're talking about it is actually unique and quite important. I want to understand about the benefits, the way you have articulated this. Would this differ by type of investors in the way you described it? You already covered a whole gamut of investors, hedge fund investors, public equity investors, or public debt investors, private investors who perhaps do not have regulatory guidelines coming, they have to adhere to. Would this differ? Yes, I think it does differ a bit. I think it's going to affect all types of investors, including the private equity industry. And in fact, for the P funds, they're going to be very exposed to the energy industry. And so I think that makes them even more sensitive to questions of reputational risk for the companies in their portfolio and the exposure to measures like this uh, meeting price that the Biden administration has introduced. So every type of investor will have different sensitivities, but we see all parts of the financial industry engaging with this new type of data. It's just a question of time. And I guess, Christian, that's people who are setting out climate-first funds, the private equity side, say, for instance, also you know, use your data to be able to make a better argument to their limited partners. Do you see any of that happening anyway? Yes, because again, this is information for the screening process. You're going to have to see if some assets may be too risky because their environmental footprint is much higher than the average. That information may not yet be in the public domain, but you want to spot that before it is too late and before some of your own clients start to have uh, misgivings about the sustainability of your portfolio. So we definitely see even the private equity industry being sensitive to those concerns. Very encouraging indeed. You obviously described the principles and you have described the motivations of the various types of investors. What will be really interesting is to hear a few stories. Certainly. One story that I think is very telling is back to forests, where a lot of companies buy carbon credits from forest protection because everybody loves trees. It makes for very good PR. And we looked at one of these large forest protection projects in Brazil. So we're in the middle of the Amazon. It's uh, 70,000 hectares of forest. And they were issuing about a million credits per year. So equivalent to a million tons of CO2. And this project started to wind down the number of credits that they were issuing 
between 2017 and 2020, they went from a million credits per year to zero. Last year, they published a report saying that, unfortunately, they had a bit more deforestation than expected, and therefore the numbers no longer added up, and they had to wind down their operation. So that's what we have with traditional uh, sources of data, because we depend on the project developer to tell us what happened. In hindsight, with satellite data, what we can see is that there was a lot of forest degradation, so selective logging happening inside the project and in the neighboring areas. And the rate of deforestation also increased as early as 2017. So for what I find this example interesting is that there were about a million and a half carbon credits issued by this project that should most likely not have been issued because they were not backed up by trees being protected. All those offsets were then sold to companies who used them to, to reduce their common footprint. But in doing so, without knowing it, they became exposed to claims of uh, greenwashing. And so that's the sort of thing we can now avoid thanks to satellite data, because looking at things from space is going to be much more powerful and accurate than having you know, half a dozen guards armed with shotguns spread every 10 kilometers in the middle of the Amazon, trying to figure out if there are any illegal incursions into the project, which, as you can imagine, it's a very, very difficult job to do. This is sort of the big step change in accuracy between traditional data reported two, three years late by the project developer versus direct observations from space where you can see, you know, potential risks emerging and, you know, take action much earlier in a much more timely fashion. This example is fascinating, but before we move on, I just want to sum up the benefits for investors in using your services. What I'm hearing you say is that, of course, the first one is reporting and regulation. And the European Union regulation or DCFD is, is driving one set of interests. What I heard you say additionally is two sets of risks. One is the stranded assets risk, which we know about. And the other is the extreme physical event risks, like the wildfires. And then finally, I think what you said is a kind of a positive motivation, motivation of investors to engage with their clients, to be able to actually measure whether their climate first investing strategies, for example, is actually creating the environmental benefit that, that they expect to create. So that's, I think, kind of a motivational and a positive response to your solutions. You know, is that a kind of a, at a, at a high level, a correct takeaway? Absolutely. And... I think you know, investors should see not only the risks, but also the opportunities uh, that this data uh, provides. And so to give another example, if you are invested in a steel company, so that steel company can do things to make their furnaces more efficient, but thanks to satellite data, they can also see the emissions associated with the coal they are burning in blast furnace. And right now, mining companies do not really report much information at all about all the methane coming out of their coal operation. Something we keep emphasizing is that among all the areas of climate action, some of the biggest opportunities for mitigation come from working on those coal mines and reducing the methane that will otherwise seep out day in, day out into the atmosphere. And the data we have now, thanks to satellites, shows that the carbon footprint of steel, up 25% of that is actually methane emissions at the coal mine and associated with the coal burned in the furnace. And it's not that difficult to address that problem at the mine site, but it will only happen when 
the steel company has that information. And when the investors in the steel company and in the mining company are you know, ready to engage with management to take those actions at the mining site. Right. And so the two examples, I mean, I'll thread them this way, that the first one that you gave is really shows the importance of data in perspective, this whole thing around ESG, in particular around the voluntary carbon markets, where there are issues, and rightly so, about the quality of carbon credits. There are issues about the stability of the quality over time, which is important as well. And in the second case, I think the takeaway that I'm having is that in these hard to abet sectors, the solution that you deploy really involves a much better understanding of where the source of emissions is, much better understanding of the problem. And that's what your data solution can provide. Again, that again, a high level summary, obviously, but how do you react to that? Yeah, absolutely. And again, in voluntary carbon markets, there's a big appetite to focus on high quality credits. So people need to be fully confident that they are permanent, that they are additional. So all these criteria that the market has identified as being essential for you know, a strong and growing uh, carbon market. So we're providing tools to ensure that everybody, all the stakeholders involved can identify and develop more projects that are high quality. And elsewhere in the, in the environmental space, yes, it's more timely data, more accurate that can help us deliver on the net zero transition. To jog along, and we have been talking a lot about the private sector, but obviously the public sector, you started actually by saying public sector could use it, and public sector investors could use it as well, right? So just give us a little bit about the motivation there. Uh, yes, we found you know, a lot of enthusiasm in the public sector for this new technology. Part of it is understandable because governments have spent a lot of money putting all these very expensive satellites in space, so they're always very happy when people like us tell them, you know, look at all the stuff we can do with your really nice uh, satellites. Um, but more seriously, to give you an example a few months ago, the European Union is looking to promote sustainable agriculture and in particular to stop imports of agricultural commodities like uh, soybeans and palm oil that are linked to deforestation. So very important goal. How do you implement such a policy? With satellite data, you can see where the deforestation has taken place, where did it happen, what crop was planted after they cleared the forest, and when they harvest that crop, which silo did it go to, from that silo to which port, and the ship that loaded that grain, where did it go to? So it's only with these types of tools that you can actually implement that policy and ensure compliance by all the private operators. So that's an example of technology that allows policymakers to devise and implement more ambitious environmental policies. Oh, well, that's a really great example of a policy. And I'm just interested in wondering whether, for example, the European Development Financial Institutions, people like the EIB and the EBRD, are they taking you up on the data? For example, I'm just hypothecating here. For the RLC, for example, is a serious area of concern for the European Union DFIs to understand the type of landmass change and so on and so forth. Do you see a potential of the DFIs using your data to be able to allocate lines of credit, not only within Europe, but outside Europe as well? I think that's coming as well. And what my experience has been, there's always a learning curve with the financial industry. They need to, first of all, become aware that these new data sets are available. And then they need to be comfortable with the data that it provides and understand how they can integrate it into their uh, capital allocation or other decision-making processes. And that's a process that takes a, a bit of time. So we're now finding 
the early adopters in the financial industry that are ready to engage. And we hope that others will follow in their example. But yes, I think for developing banks in particular, it makes a lot of sense to now think about performance criteria in their lending, for example. And once again, the innovation is that you no longer depend on the company to tell you how they're doing. You can see for yourself how they are doing and therefore have a, a much more productive engagement and long-term relationship with the companies that you're financing. Right. Just visualize, for example, you know, multiple uses of, of this data, even as you're talking, feeling quite excited about it. You know, for example, if you have, let's say, German Development Bank or the French Development Bank focusing on, let's say, an Asian country and thinking about lines of credit, you know, should they do a solar rooftop or should they do an electric vehicle or should they do something for the agricultural sector. I think that type of decision at that level where your data can really help because you can pinpoint areas of risk and areas of emissions and therefore allocate capital to the highest priority at this point of time instead of sometimes taking the decision based on more anecdotal evidence. That's right. And again, yet another application of satellite data. You know, the list keeps getting longer and longer. If you're financing, let's say, renewable energy projects, it's really important to understand how long will it take to install all these solar panels or these um, wind turbines? And so, you know, another data product that we have developed this year is to monitor the construction phase of these renewable projects. And we can do that uh, retrospectively so that we understand if you are talking about 500 megawatts of solar capacity, how long does it actually take to bring the first 100 megawatts on and then the following tranche of 100? Because that's crucial for the financials of a project. How quickly will you be generating revenue? And that, again, is another type of application for a financial institution. Understanding the project's gestation period, very critical for any financial institution, or for that matter, for an operator as well. Let's move on to process. You obviously combine satellite data and then you combine multiple other data sources. Let's talk about how you combine this data. Obviously, there are elements of machine learning and artificial intelligence that just people hear about. If you can help us demystify that. Certainly. Let's start with the satellites. There are many types of satellites, but you can think about them in terms of some are optical. So they're taking photographs with more or less uh, resolution, but some look outside of the visible spectrum. So some will focus on infrareds to look at heat, but others will be what we call multispectral or hyperspectral. So they're looking at a much broader range of light frequencies. And with that, we can do really interesting things like, for example, measure the concentration of different gases in the atmosphere, because every gas has its own signature and if you design the satellite in a certain way, you'll be able to detect the presence of this or that gas. Some satellites uh, use radar or microwaves, and that gives you another set of abilities like detecting you know, the height or detecting movement between two passes of the satellite, and also see through clouds and see through vegetation and go all the way to the soil. So those are the, the raw data that we can work with. Then you have the algorithms. So you have this huge amount of raw data to process. And sometimes you're just applying physical models. Gas comes from a certain place. It's going to create an eddy in the air. And then you look at the wind and you look at the temperature. So you kind of know what to expect and how to model all that behavior. But sometimes we have to use machine learning and AI to recognize certain shapes. But sometimes we do deep learning. And that means we're just going to throw 
all sorts of different data and let the algorithm figure out in what way to combine them to produce a useful output. And I'm not a I'm not involved in coding anymore. And so the way I would describe deep learning is we don't really know why it works, but we know that it works because we see the results, we see the correlations. And so we're not going to try to uh, worry too much about what happened in between the input and the output. So lots of different uh, techniques, but I guess for me, the key message is there are more and more satellites being put in orbit. They're more and more powerful and accurate. So we really have this wealth of data to work with, and we're only scratching the surface with all these algorithms we and others like us are developing. So there's really going to be much, much more in terms of uh, satellite analytics that will help the market in the coming months and years. I'm going to break this down a little bit and just to make sure that we all understand this. I think that we got that satellites measure different types of data and that you have to combine them. First of all, I'm going to ask you, just define what are the physical model for us. What do you mean by the word physical model? So, for example, um, if you take a picture of concentrations of gas, so you're going to see a set of pixels with different values for the amount of gas present in that area. You're going to also request data about what the wind was doing at that point in time, the direction and the speed. A physical model, what I mean here by that is, where did that gas come from? And how much gas was released to create this big cloud you're seeing in the image provided by the satellite? So you're going to do a number of simulations. You're going to pick a point in that image, assume the release of gas came from that point, take into account the wind speed, how would you know from physics how the gas is going to mix and create this eddy? And you're going to compare that simulation ruled by physics with the actual image taken by the satellite. And if you get a good match, it means you've approximated the source and the amount of gas released. If the match is not good, then you have to try again with a different source and a different volume of gas. So it's this process of simulating and finding a good match between the physics of your model and the actual observation of the satellite. That's one example of using physics and satellite imagery. Okay, Christian, we get that. You observe something and then you create a model of what parameters could have led to that observation, right? And that's what you mean by the physical modeling process. I guess this is where machine learning comes in, right? Because for a layman like me, machine learning means having machines interpret images by training them on millions of images, right? Is this where it comes in? Yes, we use that a lot because, again, the volume of data is just enormous. And so, for example, interested in counting trees, we're going to have a team of people who are going to take a training set of satellite images and they're going to draw by hand on their computers the perimeter of every tree they can see. And they'll do this for tropical forests, they do this for savanna, they'll do this for different types of environments. And you will then ask a program to try to recognize those trees automatically. Once that training process is complete and you have some software that can uh, perform as well as humans on that training set, you're going to then ask that software to process new images it has not seen before and count the trees and draw circles or polygons around them. And so once it's done that, humans will come after and see if the software did a good job or not. And when that performance is deemed good enough, then you have a tree recognition algorithm so that you no longer have to have 
dozens of people screening image after image, you're going to have an output within seconds or minutes telling you how many trees were identified in a satellite image that may measure 100 square kilometers. Great. I think the picture is coming together. You have satellites which measure lots of data. You have machines, computers interpreting that data. You having been trained on thousands of other images, which is what you call machine learning. And then you have physical models that predict the parameters that could have created those. So from that, they're estimating the things that you are interested in measuring. That's kind of the way I am drawing the picture in my head. That's exactly right. But you don't stop there, right? You use cars website and you do social media feeds and that kind of price. So if you can explain that. Yes, because the context is also important. And by context, I mean what's happening in that part of the world that you're trying to analyze. So you want to know what infrastructure is present in that area. You may want to know what's happening in that part of the world that may explain what it is that you're picking up with the satellite imagery. And so one of the things we do, as you said, is we try to process a lot of public data, natural language processing, to pick up things like there may have been an accident in that area that explains why there's a black stain in the image. And so we know what it is that we're looking at and measuring. And we want to build a map of industrial facilities so that if we see something, we know how to explain it and which type of asset and which uh, company do we want to tie it to. That context is something that you have to build gradually over time. It's, it is a bit time consuming, but having that context can be extremely useful for interpreting the data. Right. And that is, I guess, what in artificial intelligence speak. They call about natural language processing capability and from unstructured data. Do you stop there or are there other types of data that you use? I mean, the last type of data that is important is geolocation. This is, of course, all anonymized. We're not about tracking individuals. What we want to understand is movements and volumes and certain patterns. And one of the examples that I find really interesting is even if factory is covered by a roof, uh, so you don't really know how many people are inside, with geolocation, you can not only see how many workers are present, but you can also pick up if the plant is shut down because you see different phone signals than the workers that are usually there Monday to Friday. And whenever you see that pattern of new phone numbers appearing all of a sudden, it's typically maintenance staff or inspectors. So you know that the plant is down, even if from the outside, nothing's changed. It's just a big installation with the roof. So geolocation will provide some really useful and unexpected insight. And then you pull all this together and then you come up with your analysis which is a little bit algorithms and a little bit human, right? Yes. In some cases, it's going to be just the data produced by the algorithms. In some cases, we need to do some analysis to interpret all this data on behalf of the client. It really depends on what it is we're looking at and who are we analyzing this for. Which brings me to one question that I should ask is, tell us a little bit about your team. Obviously, you know, really high-powered team. One of the joys of coming to work is interacting with all these data scientists and data engineers and PhDs in physics and remote sensing. So we have a very technical team, but we also work a lot with people from academia, research labs in Denmark, in France, in the United States. So it's really about validating the scientific basis of what we're doing, understanding what's been developed in terms of cutting edge technology in an academic space, and then finding 
those commercial applications for all these great ideas to really symbiotic relationship uh, between us and the academic world. We give them a route to commercialization of some of their best ideas, and we benefit, of course, of their experience and the credibility they bring by being associated with leading research labs around the world. And collaborating with academic institutions means adhering to the concept of the open data, right? So if you can talk a little bit about that. Yes, and we very much like that model. It means publishing in peer-reviewed journals, which involves, of course, making some of the data that we produce out there in the public domain, which is important not only for, again, transparency, but also because, you know, for NGOs, for example, and for other academics, we don't want to close the door to them. And so making some of our data open source is just part of how we operate. We very much want to keep it that way. And what is your role? And, you know, how do you spend your day? I spend half of my time with methane, half of my time with biomass. And it's partly understanding what our clients are looking for. How do we find the best fit between what different industries need and what satellite data can provide? Also looking back into our teams and there's many different things we could try to develop. So it's about finding the, the areas where we should you know, focus our efforts, making people aware, again, public sector, financial sector, industry, making them aware of all these new capabilities that did not exist three, four years before, and that I think are going to have a, a huge impact, especially for sustainable finance. And so some of that awareness involves participating in events like Bosca Sanjoy, going to the COP conference at the end of the year. It's awareness is super important. Awareness is super important. What is the final message that you'd like to leave? So the final message I would have for financial institutions who are listening is this. Satellite data is really an antidote to greenwashing. And the reason why is if you can see inside the companies that you're financing or that you're investing in, then you cannot be surprised. You, you know what's going on. Risk of greenwashing really goes away. The second reason is that it allows you to have a much more active role in the transition to net zero. You can engage with companies that you invest in on a much more equal basis with management because you have a lot more facts than you do otherwise. Uh, you can introduce performance criteria in your lending. So you can have a much more active and much greater impact than may be the case. And the last message is that although, Sanja, we talked about machine learning and hyperspectral and algorithms, um, the fact is that satellite data is really not as complex as it sounds. And so people who, especially those who do not have a technical background, should really not feel intimidated by any of this. In the end, we're measuring emissions, we're measuring trees, we're measuring tons of carbon. It really is user-friendly and straightforward. We take care of all the complexity. If you want to get into the science and the technology, we're happy to always be transparent and explain how it works. But the outputs themselves are really for broad adoption by the industries. And so we encourage everyone to learn more about it. Right. So no need to feel intimidated. I think that's the point by the science. And that's really the role of a company like yours, to be able to take something which is unstructured, something new, and make it available in some to financial institution managers who do not have to then invest in the learning curve we talked about. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's something that I personally am very focused on because we have to make this user-friendly and uh, it has to satisfy the, the needs of people. Exactly. If people have to get in touch with you, how should they? 
you can find me uh, by email or on linkedin so christian lelong c.lelong at kairos.com you know i'd love to hear from you i'm sure you you will find it interesting and useful and we'll have your contact details in our show notes as well with that thank you very much christian it was wonderful thank you for having me san joey it was great fun talking to you thank you If you like this podcast, do visit us on regainparadise.org, regainparadise.com. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn, and you can also subscribe to these podcasts on Anchor, Spotify, Google, Apple, and YouTube.